1: You need to be able to think about the business in a way where you have ideas that inflect the business. What is a, a gap in the product that needs to be addressed? What's an idea for a way to achieve a step function improvement in margin? Like how can we save the company money that it is spending via an engineering investment?
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Jessica McKellar, CTO and founder at Pilot, shares her story as a serial founder. We talk about some of the lessons that can help you become a more impactful strategic business contributor and engineering leader Jessica reveals some of the different strategies for identifying your company's ideal end state and the steps needed to achieve product market fit. We also get into daily practices to help measure important metrics, business building disciplines that need to be prioritized long-term, and steps for creating positive collaboration between product engineering and design teams. Let me introduce you to Jessica. Jessica McKellar is a repeat founder and the CTO of FinTech Unicorn Pilot, an accounting firm powered by software. Previously, she was a founder and the VP of engineering for Zulip, a real-time collaboration startup acquired by Dropbox. And before that, she was a computer nerd at MIT who joined her friends at KSplice. Jessica also does extensive work with The Last Mile, a job training and reentry program that has implemented the first computer programming curriculum inside U.S. prisons. She teaches Python at San Quentin State Prison in California, hires formerly incarcerated software engineers, and uses that bridge between the tech industry and prisons to get people activated and acting for decarceration. This is a special hybrid episode exploring both engineering leadership and the journey behind becoming an engineering founder. For more episodes like this, check out our other show, Engineering Founders. You can find the link in the description and wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy this conversation with Jessica McKellar. Welcome Jessica. Thanks for joining us on the show. How is your Friday going? How are things?
1: Uh, just, thank you first so much for having me. Going great. It's actually the end of our fiscal quarter. So I've been on sales calls all day, just trying to stick a landing on our sales numbers for the quarter. And I'm happy to take a break in the beautiful, is it summer yet? almost it
0: feels like it's the end, end it. of it, april i'm up in i'm up in the pacific north so it was cold up until about five minutes ago and now it's like all of a sudden 70 degrees and sunny and like amazing so nice so it's
1: beautiful crushing sails enjoying the sunlight i mean who can complain
0: well, okay, so this is actually a really great transition to some of the topics that we're diving into, you know, bringing that end-of-quarter energy into the conversation to set up the context for folks listening. A lot of what we want to focus on is how engineering leaders can become more strategic contributors or overall better business leaders. So, the fact that you're kind of coming in here with the end of that quarter energy, I think is such a perfect segue. One other thing I wanted to share that I thought is so interesting and unique like in terms of the things we get to come into is I was reading like you've worked with the same founding team for over 10 years through three different startups two acquisitions. And so we think about like doing all of those things, like what an incredible experience being to draw on for stories and insights along this topic. So really excited to dive into these things with you. Yeah. Why don't we begin at the beginning, like with what you're doing at, at Pilot right now. So can you share a little bit more about the origin story behind Pilot, what you're up to right now, and then I think we'll be able to start to peel back some of the, the business leadership layers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Jessica. I'm the founder and the CTO of Pilot.com. We are a finance and accounting solution for small businesses and startups. Uh, the way that we do the work, though, is pretty special. There's a lot of very smart technology behind the scenes that's enabling us to own your bookkeeping and your tax and your strategic finance problems end to end. We're about 400 people. We're a, like a post-Series C company. We're technically, a fintech unicorn. But so we've been building this company for the past six or seven years. And that is kind of if you think about the stage and the size as context for some of the, the stories. So that's what we do today. And uh, yeah, we're excited for pilots to really be the back office solution for small businesses, starting with the financial back office, but really expanding from there. Super big market, so much pain. And we're so excited to solve that through technology.
0: Super helpful context. I think the other context that would be helpful is like how how has Pilot been different from some of your past experiences founding other companies like Zulip and k Yeah,
1: well, maybe just a little bit of origin story. Okay, so... I'm older than I look, but <laughs> we've been doing this for a little while with my co-founders Jeff and wassim We were all computer nerds at MIT together. We we met in MIT's computer club, SIPB, the Student Information Processing Board. Uh, our first company called Ksplice was built around Jeff's master's thesis: he had, uh, technology for rebootless kernel updates on Linux. So you know, imagine that you are. A hosting company or maybe a supercomputing cluster, and uptime is really important, but you also want to be applying those security updates, what do you do, right? Like, no one wants to be the Person who's saying, "Ah, oh, the supercomputing cluster is offline for software updates." Uh, so we we productized this technology to, to apply those updates without rebooting, and we won an MIT 100K like startup competition. But otherwise, uh, like no institutional money, bootstrapped it into uh, a profitable business that was eventually acquired by Oracle. Oracle treated us very well. We were there for a year and a day. <laughs> Uh, And then we're back in the living room, one of our living rooms, to think about what problem we wanted to solve next and decided to tackle uh, the way that teams within businesses communicate, like chat in a business context, and set out solving that problem based on our experience. Kind of like Slack before Slack was Slack, although you've heard of Slack and you probably haven't heard of Slack So I uh, learned a lot of interesting lessons from that experience. that company was acquired by Dropbox, uh, where I-, I did a pretty healthy stint. I was there for like three and a half or four years before we got back in the saddle to solve our final problem, which is business accounting. Uh, this is definitely our last job together. But we, yeah, we were all, uh, we were in this together from the very beginning, from the K-Splice days all the way up through until now. And. I mean, what a blessing to have found co-founders where we have such trust and respect, and like Dave, the, the ability to cover the responsibilities of a founding team—it just has served us so well for the past ten plus years. Now, Pilot is is you know my my best and last job, and uh, you know I think we've certainly carried the lessons and experiences from case from Zulip, from the acquisitions into building this company and really with an eye towards this being an independent company that goes public and is, is around for a long time.
0: So Jessica, like the extraordinary experience of having, you know, it sounds to me, I'm like, I'm relating this like a superhero, like power team coming together for the next mission and being like, what are we going to do next to save the world? Bring us back, what was the moment like going back to the living room? Um, what was that like just deciding like, let's do this again and having that moment together?
1: Yeah, and maybe the, the thing, the thread I would pull on that is like, why even start a company? It's so much work. <laughs> it's so much work. Uh, there are a lot of easier jobs to have. Most startups fail, so why do it again? And I think for us, it's if we're, we're going to have to go to work every day, we, we want the responsibilities of a founding team. We actually really like and lean into like the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Uh, so I think professionally, we like what our brains need to be used for in the space of building companies. We knew we wanted to, to do that again. We had the energy to do that again. And then just like, frankly, you know, we, we wanted another at bat on building something really successful that would be, you know, transformational for us economically. Um, so for those reasons, we we knew that we were going to get back in the saddle together. And then, you know, the problem is like, oh, well, how do you decide what you're going to work on, right? Like, what problem are you going to solve? And one thing that I like emphasizing when I'm reflecting with other folks on starting these companies, building these companies is... I don't at all consider myself any kind of product visionary. I can't see the future. I think I use technology in, in like a pretty non-standard way that does not help inform how to build products for other, for other people. But I I think also Waseem and Jeff, you know, we're good at systematically exploring a market, right? Like we just kind of research our way into... A, a valuable problem to solve. And that, that's very much what we have done with these previous companies. That's very much what we do with Pilot. I know you asked about getting back in the living room after that first acquisition, but you know, with, with Pilot, for example, it's like, okay, we, we have one last at at bat, what, what do we want to work on? And we literally said, okay, well, we know we want to solve a problem for businesses. We're not really consumer people. We want to solve problems for businesses. What are the biggest pain points well, we're going to determine that by going and surveying, like taking out to dinner and talking in depth with a bunch of people in a bunch of back office functions at various small and mid-market companies, HR teams, finance teams, legal teams, what have you. Ask them about their biggest pain points, you know, synthesize the themes, see what the biggest themes are, do kind of the market analysis. What are the incumbents? Like, you know, wh- what is the TAM? What are the incumbents? Like, do we think that we have a unique angle of attack on a problem, given our backgrounds, that will cause us to do something that nobody else is is doing. And so we we very much researched our way into this. And we it, it paired with the intuition that we had developed from our own experience running companies, right? So I think we married the research with the, the experience. We did the books for our previous companies. Like we bought QuickBooks desktop and a copy of QuickBooks for dummies and like did the data entry ourselves. And we're pretty sure that we were maybe not doing a great job at it. And like, surely there's some better way of doing this, right? Oh, wait, there's not a better way of doing this. Like there's no clear best in class, trusted provider. Well, that sucks for us. So now, now you know, we like we had that visceral experience with the back office, with the finance and accounting for the previous companies and that, that plus the research pointed us to solving like bookkeeping and then the broader back office with Pilot. So I think the same thing was true back for, for, for Zulip, which is like what was a pain point that we, we had experienced that other business owners experienced and that was like how to collaborate on the business. And, and that's what had pointed us at, at chat. But I think we, we're very, we're studious folks. We research our way into problem and solution.
2: But I also believe there might be a angle where you have really strong personal connection to the problem you are solving, even though that's the, the problem was identified through research.
1: I mean, that's certainly I, I think it is very helpful. Like, what what needs to be true? It needs to be a problem that you actually care about solving. Like, if you're going to spend the next five to ten to fifteen years working super hard solving a problem, hopefully you can make yourself care about it. It needs to be a problem that other people have, and it needs to be a a problem that people have so acutely that they're willing to pay for it. And then you have to be attentive to the market size, because the market size dictates how you choose to capitalize and run the business. All of these things have to come together. Us experiencing the pain of running the back office ourselves definitely helped inform the research space.
0: One thing I wanted to ask, like related to this, you know, taking in mind like the perspective of a lot of folks in our community. One of the I think biggest aspirations of a lot of folks in our peer group program, they're, they're sharing like we want to become more strategic contributors, we want to be able to expand our, our scope of impact and understand better understand different dynamics of the business. I was wondering if you'd share a little bit of like the distinction between, you know, what you focus on at founder level and CTO level versus like somebody maybe who is like, quote unquote, head of engineering or like leading specifically just an engineering function and like share maybe the distinctions between just like, what is your world? Like what's the scope of what you're focused on and how are those things different?
1: So my first answer to this is, is to talk about the metrics, right? Uh, let's take Pilot as an example. You can model it as roughly like a, like a SaaS company, right? Like we sell, we sell services on a subscription model. And a company like that has some standard business metrics. And then whatever the business is, there are some like standard business metrics that you probably care about. You care about margin. You care about NPS. You care about your revenue and your revenue trajectory. You care about all of these things. And as founders or as business owners, as part of the executive team, you're trying to stay on a metrics trajectory that gets you to where you want to go. And like, where do you want to go? Well, maybe you want to eventually go public. Maybe you want to be acquired. If you're on, if you've accepted venture money, you're going to be held accountable to like a growth curve to get to your next round because you're presumably still unprofitable, right? So there's like a bunch of metrics that you're, you're trying to achieve quarter over quarter in the service of like fundraising or getting to profitability or getting acquired or whatever. Like I am I am the owner of Margin and, and NPS that pilot. We have all of these teams. You have the R&D teams. You have our ops teams. We have our sales marketing teams. We have GNA. And all of these teams are working in the service of, you know, building this phenomenal product or service experience that that people love that people buy so that we can like keep growing the business like we can stay on these these metrics curves that we want to be on and i think it's really important to say because like r d teams don't exist because it's like fun to write code to build stuff like they exist in the service of of delivering on these metrics right like revenue goals or margin goals um, the same as any other team, you know, sales teams, you know, account executives have like quotas, sales quotas that they hit. Like R and D teams, they should be organizing themselves and, and held accountable to business metrics. And so I am thinking all day about where does the business need to be in the next quarter, in the next year, in the next three years, along with my co-founders along with the rest of the executive team. What are our metrics goals? What is the strategy to achieve those goals? What team do we need to achieve those goals within the constraints that we have? There's like finite time, there's finite money. How do we organize ourselves to, to get the work done? So it's like very business oriented, right? Like business outcomes, business metrics. And that's the altitude that I'm thinking about things. And then if I'm talking to my R&D leaders, and it's my, like my engineer, VP of engineering, VP product, VP design, whoever, like my R&D leaders, what are the activities that R&D... Can undertake that will like help us hit those metrics. And then if you're an engineering leader or a VP of engineering, so first the, the most effective engineering leaders, also product leaders, also design leaders, are the folks who like have that business mindset in addition to being really good at building high performing, functional teams and like executing well. So being good at understanding the business and making sure that R&D is actually working on the highest impact projects in the service of the business goals, that's super important. Um, and I say that to say, I, I've met a lot of, I've, I've worked at companies, shall remain nameless, like I've worked at companies or and I've talked to people who've worked at companies where engineering can feel very divorced from it, like accountability towards real business outcomes, and that's not good. It's really common, and it's not good. The, the most impactful, the most effective engineering leaders like keep the the organization laser focused on business outcomes. And I do get folks who come to me sometimes and are like, "Hey, like, how do I get to the next level as a leader? You know, they're right, they're a head of engineering or a VP of engineering, or whatever. Like, how do I get to the next level? or How do I become a CTO? And it's like, well, what do you think about all day? Because if if, if you're really good at just the execution, like you you receive projects that need to be executed on. And you're really good at, at executing on those projects with the team. That's great. And that's super valuable. But at some point, that's going to cap you out in terms of your strategic value to the company, because you, you need to be able to be a part of like inflecting the, the business strategy, the R&D strategy that will cause the business to achieve these metrics better, faster, outsized results on the metrics.
2: Uh, it's very interesting and compelling to even think about having the, a leader running R&D to be responsible and accountable for margin for business. And as you said, it's not a very common practice. What are the day-to-day things you do to optimize and monitor the margin as example?
1: A lot of this is about, do you have the right instrumentation for everybody to have the visibility that they need into the, these like primary and secondary and tertiary business metrics? So let's take margin as an example. There's like the, the top level margin numbers. And we report this to investors, like, you know, there's like gap margin. But then there are a lot of other things that it's super important that we're tracking. and We have visibility into across R&D and ops in the service of, continuing to improve margin. And there's so many things that go into this. Like we, we track so many things like the bookkeeping, monthly close portfolios on the ops side and what customers are the most and least efficient for us to process. There's like so much stuff. But then take one little tiny example with an engineering lens as a, as a tiny example. Let's say that one of the things that we do, or one of the things that we do, is we automatically import transactions from your bank accounts and your credit cards. And we we, we reconcile those accounts and then we categorize them, the activity in those accounts. And we wanna do that correctly in as efficient a way as possible. So like where possible, we wanna do that in software, right? So, you know, maybe on day one of pilot, there's no, there's no software. There's no automation. We're doing all of those imports and reconciliations by hand. And then we need a strategy for moving from no software to like as much of that work as possible being done in software. Well, what do you like? You need instrumentation on that to know how you're doing. Like, you know, what percentage of accounts are being, are successfully auto-reconciled every month? Maybe we know what's supposed to happen. What's actually happening on the ground? What's the experience with operators? Where are things breaking? You know, what, what what types of bank accounts and credit cards take longer than expected to reconcile? There's like so much instrumentation that goes into making sure that reconciliation is as efficient as we expect it to be. And that when we make investments in R&D to further automate reconciliation, that the result is actual time savings. Uh, like on the part of our operating team to that then translates to margin improvements. Like you, but think, think about the instrumentation that is required to have that visibility, what reporting is required. There's a lot of operational discipline and data infrastructure that has to go into this. So like, what does that mean for an engineering leader? It's like, okay, well we need a data team. Like what, what is our data infrastructure strategy? We need a data team. What do we need to be reporting like up to the executive team and, out across the company and like inward within R&D to stay on top of these additional metrics that are going to roll into our margin trajectory. This kind of big, abstract, super cross-functional idea like margin threads its way into the R&D org through these systems and projects.
0: Very helpful. So I'm thinking about the person who wants to help transform their mindset to better understand or anticipate like how they can align engineering with where the business is going, the business trajectory. And so you'd mentioned like you, you sort of live in this, this altitude of thinking about in the next six months to three years, like the goals, the strategies, the team to achieve within some of those constraints. Do you have certain questions or frameworks that you've used to think about or find that answer for where's the business going to go in the next six months to three years? And has that been different with the different types of companies that you've founded?
1: I'm going to give you the honest and kind of boring answer, which is if you're on the path towards being a public company, which is the path that a pilot is on, Eventually, all companies are evaluated in the public markets in a standard way. Everything is building up, like the, from the inception of the company, everything is building up towards eventually being evaluated in that way. And that's why even now as a private company, it's like you talk about this revenue curve and you talk about margin and talk about your burn, your burn multiple, you talk about all these things because we're, it's like get you're, you're building the internal discipline to be ready to be evaluated in that. I think what's different about Pilot from the other companies is we're very clear with ourselves that that is the game plan. Mm -hmm. And we just are kind of, we're just better at running companies now because we've done it several times and we've just, we've matured as human beings and we've we've gotten the the experience from these other companies. Taking all of that experience and knowing what the end game is, like the end game, frankly, is very spelled out for us by what the public markets do. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of like, how do you run a company year over year, quarter over quarter on a trajectory to get to that eventual goal.
0: Do you think about like the sequencing of building out like the maturity or some of those habits or like the internal discipline? I was wondering if there was like any ways that you think about what parts of like the business building discipline like typically need to come first versus others like along that long-term journey?
1: I'm not sure that this is maybe not a direct answer to your question, but I think what I would say in response to it is the earlier you know what metrics you care about, and you start at least measuring them, the, the better. Because otherwise, you're just you're kind of operating blind on how the business is doing on various axes. Even if you're not prepared to invest in changing the metrics, I think having discipline around tracking them is important. So you, can tr- you like track your margin from like day one, <laughs> and it you know maybe you don't like what it is, but at least you know that so that you're not surprised about the number when you need to report on it for a fundraising event or for whatever reason. And then that's about on the engineering side. Again, often when you, you be, be it related to customer satisfaction or revenue or margin or whatever, there's often data infrastructure that needs to be built out to have the visibility that you need on this. So like as a leadership team, as a founding team, like making sure that you're allocating the right mind share and appropriate resources to having that instrumentation and visibility.
0: That's great. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. I want to cue into what you'd mentioned a couple times, you know, having like this clarity around the end state of the business is having the the end state or the end goal in mind. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about with having started a, you know, a number of different companies, that end state has been different. Were you intentional with having that end state in mind within those different types of companies? And what was the conversation like to make the decision? This is the end state of like, how we want this business to go? Uh, what was that like?
1: What market you're in and the size of the market go a long way towards dictating what the possible outcomes are. <laughs> like Ksplice, for example, super fun, cool technology, rebootless kernel updates on Linux, super fun to build, ultimately for a fairly narrow audience. Like There are only so many companies that have a lot of computers that run Linux that care about like, never going down, basically. And so if, you, if you're tackling a very narrow market, that's difficult to build in. Indefinitely independent company on and and so you know often an acquisition is the most likely outcome because it, it just it it needs a home as part of a broader portfolio of solutions for, for the audience that you're targeting and that's exactly what happened case place, right in the acquisition by Oracle I, now I don't know if we if we could have told you that before we started the company like back in school uh, but certainly retrospectively that that sort of obviously was the case.
0: That's interesting. And what about, what about with Zulip? Was that like kind of connecting the dots retrospectively? What was kind of the assessment process like?
1: We would have been happy to have turned out the way Slack has turned out. <laughs> uh, that kind of business solution, that can be a very large dam. Could have definitely been an independent company for a long time. Although again, Slack, you know, eventually all business tools end up being acquired by Microsoft. So you
2: know,
0: <laughs> all assessment paths lead to like the common market evaluation. All business tools lead towards Microsoft.
1: And all consumer tools get bought by Facebook. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, since you have been building business for a few times with the uh, saving funding team, uh, what are the things you're going to do differently uh, the third time around that might be valuable for all the you know uh, first-time funders to know?
1: One of the big things that we did at the outset was just really intentionally choosing a large market. And so I think in a way that was more intentional, more opinionated than with the previous companies, like we're going to go after something that we think is a very it's hard to enumerate specific, interesting things, just generally being sharper as, you know, managers and leaders having done it before a couple of times.
2: It might be... Coincidentally, you just find the perfect fund, co-founders, and there you never have any conflicts and any problems. <laughs> it could also be that uh, you learn a lot and the way you approach those collaboration in the right way, so that it started out as any other co-founders, but uh, you had ability to nurture that to a point that you want to start multiple co- companies together. So, what are the case is for for you all, and uh, what are the the right things you did that I think is um, instrumental of to other entrepreneurs.
1: So so a couple of reflections here. So one is, I mean, the, 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 the relationships between founders and the dynamic between founders, it really is important. I mean, having advised a lot of startups, just seeing what happens with a lot of companies, even through the lens of pilot. You know, the number one reason why companies fail is because they're tackling a problem people don't actually want to pay for. The number two problem in the early days is probably like founders not covering enough bases in an effective way. So I feel like incredibly fortunate that, you know, despite the fact that we're all computer nerds from MIT, it's like kind of very homogenous backgrounds, <laughs> uh, we were able to stratify into to covering all kind of the, the big bases for a founding team very naturally. You meet with Steam, you're like, he's a people person. Loves talking to people, gets energized by that. And he, like in early, like in the early days of KSplice, gravitated towards the sales side and has stayed there ever since. And, and today, that, you know, he's, he principally focuses on the go-to-market side of a pilot. And then if you talk to Jeff, you're like, oh, well, Jeff reads corporate tax law for fun. You're like, that sounds like a <laughs> DNA guy. <laughs> you know, he's great with like, the legal teams and the HR teams, because there's a lot that's really complicated, uh, nitty-gritty, the detail-oriented work of those teams and like, how to get it right in a stage-appropriate way he's really good at. I've always stayed on the, kind of the product and engineering side. And and that so that stratification happened really early and it happened really organically and I'm grateful that that has been such a productive and durable fit. You know, I think it, it took years for us to work through all of the kinks in our like professional relationships. You know, I've had many many fights, mostly with Jeff. <laughs> But, you know, in the way of any relationship that's worth investing in, you, you work through it, you ref, you like debrief on interactions that maybe could have been better. You know, I personally, one of the transformational experiences that I had personally was going through an executive coaching program at Dropbox that I think really informed my approach to my business and relationships and also like in my personal relationships like with my husband. So yeah, I mean it's it's like it takes work to build a a super genuinely high trust foundation that's like so high trust that you can say, Hey, you own sales and marketing and you know, I'm gonna own product and I trust that you're gonna make decisions that are we're all values aligned on about how to conduct the business of yeah, there's no shortcut on that. And then I think also, maybe by extension, when people are like, well, how do I find a co-founder? And like, first off, don't ask me because I got super lucky. Like, I haven't had to think about this since I was 19. But but I but I will say that having at least sort of worked with these folks before, in this case, it was like in the context of a student group at a college. But yeah, like, like hopefully you've actually had to do real collaboration together that's like stressed, tested, like how you resolve conflict together? Are you aligned in your values? Because that's going to be what actually matters.
2: Yeah, another thing that can be important is that building start so hard and uh, there are a lot of risk. And the fact that th- all three founders want to start again after going through to a successful acquisition, that alone is hard.
1: Yeah, but you've, you've got to be aligned on, like, you know, yeah, you know, why, be aligned on why we're doing this again and what outcome we're looking for, right? That's like going to be super important for you before you get started.
0: I wanted to ask about about that a little bit, like that phase, the, the decision you all come to in terms of this is the path that we want Pilot to, to go on. What has it been like to? understand or explore the different alternative paths to the company? Like, and how would you recommend different co-founders sort of walk through and explore some of the paths that a company can take together to, to come to a, like an aligned decision? How do you, how do you create that alignment together? Is there secrets to the conversation that you should have ahead of time or any recommendations?
1: I think you just have to have frank conversations about it. It's like, cool. The plan for Pilot is that this is going to be an independent company indefinitely and we will eventually IPO. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means we're probably going to be doing this for like at least the next 15 years. We're not like building this company to try to sell it as soon as possible. Are we all actually willing to do that? Or like not in our 20s anymore. Are we like, we have kids, are we actually willing to do that? So just having conversations like that about the, and then also when you're going the you know, the venture route before we did our first fundraise, when you take VC money, it puts you on this curve that you've got to stay on. It's brutal you know the triple 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 double double revenue curve is like not a joke i mean it's so much work the things that you're doing today you're going to have to keep doing but you are also going to need to be doing new things to drive you know incremental revenue quarter over quarter and that's just on the revenue side let alone on for all these other metrics that we need to be hitting so it's like are we ready for that are we ready to be on that on that roller coaster again and you just you talk about it frankly and if you're aligned great and if you're not then it's, it needs to be a different company team
0: absolutely So Jessica, one of the things you mentioned early on in our conversation was that a a big place where engineering leaders, like in this intent to become a a bigger strategic contributor and an area where oftentimes people can get stuck is being really good or being really focused on execution. Like here's a project, you can execute it. I was wondering, like, how can somebody go beyond execution or demonstrate that they are ready to be a a more impactful strategic contributor to the business?
1: Totally, And this is true. Uh, both for like folks in management roles as well as for ICs, staff engineers, you need to, ha- you, like, you need to be able to think about a- the business in a way where you have ideas that inflect the business. This is like what we would build versus not build. What is a-, a gap in the product that needs to be addressed? What's an idea for a way to achieve a step function improvement in margin via some clever engineering investment? Like, how can we save the company money that it is spending via an engineering investment? Mostly the way to have, you know, useful, unique insights into this from the engineering side is you've got to be super close to the customer. So how do you get super close to the customer? Well, you got to talk to them. You've got to like listen to sales calls. You need to like be on churn reviews with the customer success team, or at least listen to the call recordings. There's no short, or in the pilot's case, we sort of have, if you're an engineer, you kind of have two customers. You have our internal operations team and then you have our end customer. You gotta sit with the bookkeeping team and watch them use the tools and see where they're struggling. Like there's no shortcut to that. So the the best engineering leaders, ICs or managers are obsessed with understanding the customer and they take that information. And like the the best engine, the most effective engineers are also really great product folks because they're super close to the customer. And that translates to like having product opinions. The only way to have a super high degree of impact with the company is to have opinions that you're willing to stand behind that like you can get other people on board for that will, when executed against, will inflect the business you got to do it. That's like, that's the only thing that, that there's no shortcut. And, and you can't execute your way to higher impact at some point, you have to have ideas about where the business or the product needs to go.
0: The actionability of, of being able to develop the skill sets to impact the business, like all those things seem readily available to be able to, to do all of those things, and just takes action, action and effort. Are there other approaches to help folks gain exposure to learn the business? beyond like getting close to the customer or like l- watching people use the tool so they can develop more informed opinions? um, Are there other sort of exposure pathways that maybe are unique to the context of engineering?
1: I mean, I, maybe this maybe sounds like a broken record, but I, I would reiterate, it's like number one, what do you actually understand about the, the product experience or the customer experience like based on the numbers, right? So... Are you like a force for good in the organization on increasing the understanding and the speed of the feedback loop through the instrumentation, through what data we have and how we talk about it and how we share it? So it's, it's that piece of it. And then it's being close to customers. And so, yeah, if you're an engineer, it's like, first off, I'm sure that the sales team, if you're like, hey, I'd like to sit in on some sales calls or or listen to some of the recordings, they'll be like, Hell yes, I want engineering to understand when when I'm telling you that this thing is broken and we need to fix it and it never gets prioritized in the backlog. Yes, you listen, here's an example of the customer being pissed off. Yes, do that. Like be proactive about it. Don't wait for someone to say, "Hey, do you want to sit in on a listening session with some customers?" Like go go find the information yourself. Go go make it happen for yourself. And then it's like, hey, I don't think we have a fast enough feedback loop on if the tooling is like serving the needs of our internal operators. Like, I think we need this like X, Y, and Z instrumentation to have better visibility to make better decisions faster. Like, let's talk about if and when we have the appetite to resource this because it is going to take resources, right? So i say it's the data and it's the intuition that gets developed about where the product needs to go by talking to customers or listening to other people talking to customers. That's all I can really
2: offer.
0: Related to this, so you said some of the best engineering leaders are also great product folks. Related to product, I'm thinking of like folks in our community that want to expand their leadership impact within earlier stage companies that are in that seeking that product market fit stage. I would love to get your perspective here because I think like, overall, just like in terms of assessing product market fit and how to think about that, I think you have some really interesting things to share. But in terms of like helping an engineering leader be more effective, like this seems like a really high impact area for somebody to be able to develop a skill set around. So I was wondering if you'd share maybe how do you identify, you you talked a lot about having the end state of the business in mind, how do you identify the end state you need to meet in order to achieve product market fit? Um, And I was wondering if you maybe talk about like how an engineering leader's perspective can, can be a driver of, of helping either identify those things or help better develop that end state.
1: Yeah, product market fit is like what, like, what does that broadly mean? It's like, cool, you figured out that there's a thing that you can sell at a particular price point where people will actually buy it and it gives you reasonable economics in the business, like margin or, or otherwise. If you have that, you have product market fit. It's not good enough to just be able to sell something because like if you're selling a dollar for 50 cents people will definitely buy that from you but that's not a sustainable business right there's no shortcut to how do you know the product market fit it's like you demonstrated that you're selling something that people will buy at a price point that works for the economics of the business and then what does that mean for engineering well again it's like be super plugged in on what those metrics are again broken record it's like hey what are the metrics that matter for the business margin csat whatever engineering needs to live and breathe those numbers like culturally, does engineering agree those numbers? And like, are you able to be a force for good and making sure that's the case if it's not?
0: Know the numbers and then be a force for good to meet those numbers. And I think another another element of this was understanding like what a success in those numbers look like, but then also being able to identify or understand the systems that help you achieve that state. Um, how do you think about like identifying the systems that help you achieve like that end state of product market fit?
1: I mean, a lot of this is about what data visibility you have. And so from the engineering side, what instrumentation do you need to understand the numbers and then to make sure that everyone is able to talk about them effectively.
2: So you run product engineering, SM Design as well. You come from a, a engineering background. How do you help to create a really good collaboration across those teams?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's not a revolutionary answer, but, you know, how do you set up high-functioning, you know, R&D leadership teams? Like, first, make sure that everyone really understands and is aligned around and is excited about the business and the business strategy. Have very clear roles, responsibilities, areas of ownership, and clear alignment around what the metrics are that the teams own and are driving. And then, I say this like it's not super hard. Then make sure that you're hiring great people who you can entrust to This the know, hardest part. the goal is it's like we're we have the same fact base, right? We're aligned on what the business needs to accomplish, how we're going to measure it and what you own, and I trust that you and the team are going to figure out how to get from where we are to where we need to be in four quarters or two quarters or whatever, right? And you know, it's like you have you own the strategy, ideally, like you're the closest to the tech stack or you're the closest to the, the design considerations. You, you know, you're spending a bunch of time with the customer. Like Ideally, you're, you're building a leadership team that you truly can trust to articulate like a technical strategy and a security strategy and a product strategy and, and everything else against the business strategy. And that's, and that's the dream, the dream. And I, the, the dream is not always possible. It's like, yeah, do I still have feedback on our product strategy? Yeah, of course. That's normal. It's healthy. But the, you know, the, the ideal is like you're clear on the metric, like you're clear on the, the over, like the, the North Star, you're clear on the metrics, you've got a great team, and then people have like broad autonomy to go figure out how to hit the goals.
2: Clarity and autonomy is the keywords here.
1: Yeah. Otherwise, why am I, why am I hired you? I don't, <laughs> if I'm just going to figure out how to do everything myself, then there's no leverage in that.
0: Awesome. Jessica, are you ready for some rapid fire questions to wrap us up?
1: Yes, I don't think i read them. So this is, I've been going into this blind. So I was gonna be honest.
0: We're doing it live. Perfect. Okay. First question. What are you reading or listening to right now?
1: I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm listening to the backlog of a podcast called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, which is uh, like a queer anarchist take on history. And I am reading an autobiography by a comedian named Bob Mortimer. I I know him from British panel shows, uh, but he has a very interesting life and he like has a law degree and used to do a bunch of public defendery, um, sort of supporting people who needed support against the state. Really interesting life.
0: Awesome. I'm going to go check out cool people who do cool stuff. That's one of the best podcast title names, first off, but like alternative takes on history. I I get I'm obsessed with that. So next question, what tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
1: My answer is like, I I live and die by like, my inbox is a to do list. And you will take that from my cold dead hands. <laughs> it's chaos. I don't use filters. Everything is like direct mainline into my inbox. And that's how I live. And the dream every day, every week, every month, every year is to get to inbox zero. It's been years. But you know what, I have that clear aspiration for myself. At some point, I'll really know that I can retire from pilot when I've got an inbox zero.
0: <laughs> that is the strong opinion we needed on something that works for you. <laughs> so that was a perfect answer. Next question. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: What I spend all of my time doing outside of work is stuff related to decarceration in California. It's like, okay, the hot trend that other people need to get on is we need a a smarter approach to public health and safety and we need to lock up fewer people for less time.
0: Last question. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
1: Like a thing that I say not infrequently, well, okay. I'll say like the, the actual quote, like to someone like my husband, I would not do this in a work context, but if, if, if it's like, we need to do something and we're like, not trying sure to do it. And we're like, eh, I don't know. yeah, there's like flailing about accomplishing something. It's like, if I put a gun to your head, could you figure out a way to make this work? And the answer there's almost always yes. So I don't use those terms usually, but like, have you tried actually trying is usually the takeaway on some problem that someone is stuck on mentally. And so just um, in a way that is like polite, but holding someone accountable to the high and reasonable expectations that you have for them because they're very capable, get it done.
0: A great, I think it's a great question to help somebody get unstuck. Because once you start trying and actually like putting in something into action, usually that helps shift, like just create that little shift to look in. That's awesome. Jessica, thank you for an incredible conversation and for just opening up your mind and sharing us all of the questions and their perspectives and how you think about when it comes to business building and strategically thinking through different challenges. We really appreciate you. Just the generosity of being able to open up your world and how you think. We appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thanks so much for for chatting. It's super
0: fun. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.